You are listening to a podcast from The National. The Night of the Long Knives. That was one of the headlines that kept popping up in media to define the monumental events that took place in Saudi Arabia this week. Of course, uh, this is a reference to an event in Nazi Germany where a series of executions were carried out to consolidate Hitler's power. Some of the other headlines played on the famous poem, uh, Remember, Remember the 4th of November, that is also in reference of how Guy Fawkes attempted to topple King James I and attack the British Parliament. Of course, aside from being smart or catchy, neither fully grasp what actually happened this week in Saudi Arabia. Because when you ask Saudis, they are much more likely to refer to that night as the first time justice has been carried out on corruption at the highest levels. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr al-Wesmi. And today, we'll be looking at how the events this week will redefine Saudi history. It was actually three events that will likely redefine Saudi Arabia for as long as the young and often described as bold Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman reigns. One was a resignation. The second was a missile launched into the capital denoting an act of war. And the third, the rounding up of what has been described as Saudi's corrupt elite. We're talking about some of the world's wealthiest personalities being rounded up all in one night. This would be the equivalent of an American president tossing Warren Buffett, the Koch brothers, Rupert Murdoch, and a handful of top Washington officials in one fell swoop. The country is undergoing a bigger change than ever before, as dozens of businessmen and princes who were often believed to function above the law are now feeling the brunt of it. Young Saudis have been feeling disenfranchised for decades, as the reality of their country as one of the richest in the world hardly transferred into their daily lives. The corruption levels were astonishing. And now, finally, they feel like someone is looking out for them. How this story unfolds, however, is very much anyone's guess at this point. I'm joined by Jane Kinnermount, the Deputy Head and Senior Research Fellow at Chatham House. Jane, can you tell me what exactly happened on November 4th and why is this so important? On Saturday, there was a stunning series of sudden announcements The government said it was establishing a new committee to fight corruption with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman at its head. And very quickly, it was circulated through Al Arabiya and through other media organizations that very prominent princes, business people and ministers were among those who had been arrested. Now we see uh, that those arrested include the kingdom's wealthiest businessman, Prince Walid bin Talal, uh, several former ministers, including the Minister of Finance and the Minister of Economy, who had been in his place until Saturday, uh, Mithib bin Abdullah, a son of the former king who had headed the National Guard and the head of the, the Navy, were among uh, those who've been caught up in this anti-corruption purge. It's significant largely because this is unprecedented in Saudi Arabia, where in the past 
if a leader has had concerns about a senior member of the royal family, they have usually been quietly shunted into a less powerful position, but protected from any very public embarrassment. And we have seen that even in the case of fairly high-profile corruption issues being covered in the media. Now it seems quite the opposite. There is a desire to make an example of senior people. Hmm. And the the authorities are very much pitching this as a sign that it's a real anti-corruption drive and that it sends a strong message to everybody in the Saudi system that nobody is above the law. At the same time, of course, this kind of purge does also have political effects uh, on the way that power is structured in the kingdom. And so a lot of the debate internationally has been about to what extent is this a real shift in the way of doing business and to what extent is it more about power dynamics within the royal family. How do Saudis feel about this? Are there feelings of fear or are they feeling like uh, something finally is being done, especially the youth, Mm. maybe? I'll start by saying that we cannot be 100% accurate about public opinion in Saudi Arabia because there are limits on what people can say and will say, and there isn't very systematic opinion polling. We can see certainly a lot of support being expressed on social media, but at the same time, anyone who doesn't support what's going on is quite unlikely to voice their opinions because this is clearly something being driven from the very top of the government and it's not really accepted uh, to speak out against the, the Crown Prince. Indeed, people could fall foul of the law for doing that on social media. So we always have to bear that in mind that there will be some voices that aren't heard. Nonetheless... Overall, it's clear that there has been public frustration for a long time over perceptions of corruption and also nepotism and the role of of WASTA and a general widespread feeling among many young people in Saudi Arabia that they don't have equality of opportunity and that their economic prospects really depend on who they know uh, and that wealth is often accumulated unfairly. And those perceptions have to change if the kingdom is really to implement Vision 2030, if people are to have incentives to study and to work in the private sector, they need to believe that they can be successful that way and that they won't be held back by vested interests. So I think there will be a lot of popular jubilation, especially to see that senior people are are not immune from punishment. You mentioned Vision 2030, and that's 13 years from now. But this shows that Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince, is willing to make bold moves. But, I mean, is there a worry that this might be too much too fast? There have been questions about whether Mohammed bin Salman is doing too much too fast on all of his projects. (laughs) He is doing so many things at once. He started by altering Saudi Arabia's foreign policy quite dramatically, Uh, He sped up economic reforms, which were already in the making, but were given a lot more urgency with his backings. He's pushed ahead with social liberalization. He's talked about returning to more moderate Islam. and And now this is happening. So things are changing very fast and on almost all fronts at once. And so investors who are looking at the country are asking questions about how stable is his position, 
how sustainable is this? Will these various promises be implemented? Of course, it's very hard for people to judge because this way of governing Saudi Arabia is very new. Jane, thank you so much for joining us. Good to speak to you, Nasser. Thank you. We kicked off the most dramatic week in the kingdom's recent history. Surprisingly, came from someone who is not Saudi at all. Well, he's half Saudi. The Prime Minister of Lebanon resigned late Saturday night in a move that, on the surface, looks like it had nothing to do with Saudi Arabia. Although some were expecting his resignation, no one anticipated that he would make the announcement from Saudi Arabia. The reasons he gave were that Hezbollah, the Iranian-backed Lebanese organization, were making the governance from Beirut near impossible. Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah, called for patience and calm, but that's unlikely to transpire. Across the Arab world, this might show that Saudi Arabia is readjusting their policy towards Iranian-backed groups, first in the Houthis and now in Hezbollah. What happens, though, is still very much up in the air. I'm joined by Dana Mukhalalati, an editor on the National's Foreign Desk, and she's been reporting on what's happening in Lebanon and Saudi Arabia this week. So what exactly does this mean that the prime minister of Lebanon resigned? Does this show how strong Hezbollah's influence is in the country? I don't think it's a secret that Hezbollah is a powerful force in Lebanon. Mr. Hariri's resignation on Saturday is not necessarily an indication that Hezbollah's influence in the country is increasing. Many will argue their popularity is in fact decreasing. I think if you talk to Lebanese people, most people, their concern is just to have a good life, send their children to good schools, make sure they have a meal on the table. It is Hadidi's resignation is simply a response to Iran's increasing influence in the country. And it is very well established that Hezbollah is an Iran-backed organization and it is an Iranian proxy. It is not something that he's willing to tolerate anymore. They have stood in his way for far too long, and this is not something he wants to put up with anymore. When we talk about Iran, that's uh, Saudi Arabia's regional arch rival. What is he looking to accomplish in this readjustment? And what does it mean that he also made the announcement from Saudi Arabia? Well, I think with his resignation, he's hoping to show that it is in the best interest of the people and of Lebanon that there would be no foreign interference in the country. As long as Hezbollah is interfering in the government's work, it is not Hezbollah that's interfering because it's ultimately Iran that is interfering in the government's work. And I think what it's trying to show is the only way that this country, that Lebanon is going to work, is if these foreign interferences do not exist anymore. Is there any sign of... uh I mean, the fact that he made the announcement in Saudi, does that signify anything? Listen, at the end of the day, Mr. Hariri is a Lebanese-Saudi citizen, and he is free to travel between the two countries. And not only that, Saudi Arabia has had a very close relationship with the Hariri family. Um, They had a very close relationship with Rafiq Hariri, also a Lebanese-Saudi citizen and who served as prime minister and unfortunately assassinated in 2005. Saudi Foreign Minister Adil Jubeir said in an interview with CNN that Hariri's decision to resign was his. Ultimately, it is his decision to resign. And yes, Saudi Arabia supported his premiership and supported his policies that he wanted to implement in the country, which ultimately he wasn't able to implement in the country. And Hezbollah has been standing in the way. So it doesn't necessarily mean they asked him to resign. 
He's free to do as he wishes, and he's free to travel to wherever he wants. If he happened to resign in Riyadh, I don't think that's an indication of anything in particular. We're getting reports that uh, Hariri is actually in Abu Dhabi. Uh, now, he met with uh, King Salman yesterday, and uh, now he's here. We're just trying to figure out, I mean, do you have any idea what, what is likely his purpose here? What is he trying to achieve? Well, yes, it's true. We learned this morning from Hadidi's press office that he headed from Riyadh to Abu Dhabi to meet with Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed. I don't think it's surprising that Mr. Hadidi is in Abu Dhabi today. And uh, the UAE, like Saudi Arabia and many other Arab countries, have voiced concern on Iran's expanding influence in the region. And they have that in common. I think it is being discussed like any other portfolio between allies. And also, it, it could, you know, I'm, I think it's a good thing because it puts to rest reports that he was, uh, some reports said that he was arrested in Saudi Arabia. Some reports said that he was being held in Saudi Arabia and not allowed to leave, which is also not necessarily true. In fact, one of the Lebanese interior ministers said yesterday that they expect Mr. Hadidi to be back in Lebanon within days. The man of this week has obviously been crowned Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he is growing increasingly more popular at home, uh, especially with younger, more disenfranchised Saudi youth. Uh, Hariri is often seen in the same light as someone who might be able to unify Lebanon. We all know that the, the storied and, and, and conflicted history. But, I mean, is there any report? Do you have any idea of what their relationship might be like? Uh, is there anything that we've gotten that might indicate that, that it, exi- it exists at all? I think that the Saudi crown prince and Saad Hariri have a lot in common. The, the reason for their popularity is because they both have an understanding what the younger generation wants. What Saudi is doing now is unprecedented for the country. We have They have come a long way uh, from allowing women to drive in 2018 to the recent arrests in an anti-corruption probe. So we heard uh, Hassan Nasrallah, uh, the figurehead of Hezbollah, basically ask for patience and calm in Lebanon. We know that when these things happen, they tend to be the precursor to war. I mean, in Lebanon, almost at any time, war can break out. We've seen that in the past. But I mean, what are your what are your thoughts? Uh, are you hearing from back home that how are, how are streets exactly? Uh, what are people saying? Unfortunately, I think many Lebanese have become desensitized to this kind of rhetoric. This is something that we have been hearing for also a very long time. Um, but you're right. You never know when war breaks out. And sometimes it's when you least expect it. And But are people scared? I don't necessarily think people are scared. I think people are a little concerned with all the upheaval that's happening now in the region, whether it's Saudi Arabia, Yemen, Syria, Iraq. But... People live their lives, and I don't think people are just cowering at home, scared of war breaking out. Donna, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. We'll go further beyond the headlines in just a moment. But first, allow me to tell you about The National's other podcast. Business Extra goes deeper into the movers and shakers that make the Middle East such an important financial hub in the world. An extra time from our esteemed sports desk is the best place to chat about the English Premier League and more. Subscribe to both shows as well as this one on iTunes or find us, as always, at thenational.ae. Now to Yemen. On Sunday, a ballistic missile was launched more than a thousand kilometers through the air aimed at the kingdom's capital, Riyadh. 
It was intercepted by Saudi Arabia's Patriot surface-to-air anti-ballistics, but the proverbial fallout of the event caused Saudi to react the most aggressively it has to Iranian influence in the region. Yemen claims that the missile was a Yemen-built Burkan 2H. Saudi is calling that bluff and has concluded that it was Tehran's doing. Locked into a war to curb Iran's backing on the Houthi rebels, Saudi has closed Yemen's border. Also, they have created a top 40 Houthi most wanted list, and they've put bounties on each of these personalities. The missile launch on Riyadh, Saudi, has called it an act of war. I'm joined by Osama Rouhani, a Yemeni and program director of the Sana'a Center for Strategic Studies. This list of 40 people, it's a, a, some sort of most wanted list. So I want to know, what does this mean for public sentiments in Yemen? And how is this likely to affect the battle on the ground? I think the, uh, the list that the coalition has uh, announced uh, is uh, a demonstration of a new tactic to fight uh, Houthis. Uh, but I'm not quite sure that would have any public uh, sentiment. Uh, but the impact of uh, such uh, strategy or such a tactic is that it's going to cause a lot of uh, security concern for these 40 people. And I would expect even a, a reaction from these 40 people. Like they, they the Houthis just launched uh, one missile, and I think, uh, such kind of direct threat to every individual of them might in, incite them to, uh, to 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 go further. Uh, but I think also there is, if you could go through the list, the list that has been announced includes only Houthi uh, figures, but it never talked about the other part of Saleh Houthi coalitions. Right. No one from Saleh sides, and I think uh, this is an attempt to create a new dispute. Uh, between the the two allies uh, here, I mean uh, Houthi and, and 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 Saleh, how would that impact the the conflict? Um, I'm I'm sure that it wouldn't have like a great impact for the short term, mm. but uh, uh, if it doesn't succeed, uh, it wouldn't uh, be any loss for the coalitions. You brought up a really good point. The uh, former president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, over the summer, him and the Houthis kind of had a falling out, and which is often referred to as a marriage of convenience. So his omission from the list, I mean, some of the rumors going around was that one of them was settling for a peace deal. I mean, can we can we look into this a bit more and, and see what, I mean, what do you think that might indicate that he isn't on the list anywhere near the 40s? I'm sure that the, the coalition will play on this assumption that there is a, a dispute between Houthis and Salah. And actually there is, uh, a dispute, but we 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 noticed that when this dispute started, and it reached to its utmost uh, peak, uh, both Houthi and and, and Saleh thought that if they would have, uh, if this dispute will continue and it will expand, then that will uh, be on them. They will be the loser uh, on this battle, mm. uh, and that's the only thing that now their enemy is still one, and they share one enemy. So that dispute is being resisted. There is an actual dispute. Nobody can can deny that. And this marriage of convenience can break uh, only when there is a peace uh, settlement. Speaking about Saudi Arabia, the missile that was shot earlier this week, the Burkan 2H, uh, that was intercepted somewhere northeast of Riyadh, what implications does that have on uh, what's going on in Yemen? I mean, how is this likely to change the face? And how do, do Houthis see it? Are more bombs likely to come, and do they see that as a kind of bargaining chip and negotiating chip when it comes down to it, if 
ever? Uh, first of all, I mean, after two years and a half from uh, I mean, from a war, uh, Houthis launch a missile and it goes over 1,500 kilometers and it reaches to the heart of Saudi Arabia. It's just a very risky uh, indicator for, for Saudi Arabia that after all this period, after they thought that they that the Houthis are getting weaker, uh, but in reality, Houthis have sent a message that we are still very uh, strong and, uh, and I'm sure that will attract the attention of Saudi Arabia, even though they have now some internal disputes, uh, but it's still uh, such kind of, um, of hit with just uh, have, like ring the risk bell at uh, the Saudi side and for sure they will have a reaction. What, ty what type of reaction? That is something that it's, it's really hard to anticipate, but I would expect that there might be two things. First of all, uh, we have, or there, there is in Yemen, a uh, number of fighting fronts, and there hasn't been any progress on them. One of the examples is Taiz, for an instance. Uh, it's been for almost during the whole conflict, and there is no progress militarily. And I think maybe uh, the coalition and the Yemen uh, legitimate government would expand their um, military operations, and they might uh, gain some wins on these fronts. That is one scenario, uh, but that's not... Uh, seem to happen given the divisions on the coalition side and the different agendas between Saudi Arabia and uh, UAA, uh, and also the, the local divisions on the legitimate government as well. That, so that is one scenario. The other scenario that might happen is to open new fronts, but where that is uh, the question. But there are uh, some UN reports that just, or some statements from the UN that the, the ships should evacuate the coastal area and Hodeida and mm. so on. And and that might uh, tell us that there might be some sort of activity in that area. And if, if that's going to happen, it's going to be a Hudaydah port, right. uh, maybe. So there might be that new front. But that front is going to have a lot of consequences on, on, on the conflict. It's going to make peace far-fetched. It's going to make the situation of Yemen uh, and Yemenis the uh, worse and worse. Right. It's going to escalate the humanitarian crisis. It's going to increase the uh, revenge from the Houthi side. Mm. And, and and it's going to be very scary if they would open that front. But definitely, I would expect that maybe Saudi would, would, would expand their military operations, but that would take time. I mean, it's not just a decision of overnight. It, it, it needs a lot of preparations and it needs a lot of uh, work uh, from a military perspective. All right, Osama, thank you so much. And we'll make sure to keep an eye out on that. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank my guests, Jane Kinemount, Dana Mukhalilati, and Nusam al-Rohani. I'd also like to thank our producer, Emmanuel Samoglu. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasr al-Wesmi. This has been Beyond the Headlines. Thank you for listening and goodbye.